Welcome to Own the Microphone. Join me, Bridget McGowan, an award-winning international professional speaker and owner of the independent publishing company, BMAC Talks Press. Hello, Bridget McGowan here, and welcome to today's episode of Own the Microphone. Today, I am joined by Michael Hannigan. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Now, Michael is not a professional speaker, and that's all he does. He also is all about the world of intellectual property, and so we are just going to get right into it. How did you become a professional speaker, and how do your passions and interests intersect in the public speaking world? Yeah, I mean, my background in professional speaking is just uh, from different leadership positions that I've held. I've worked in uh, religious communities. I've served as a state government official uh, in a child welfare agency, uh, representing the entire agency in collaboratives with federal government and with private partners. Um, And then uh, I do my own work uh, as a former uh, uh, elite higher ed administrator, kind of working through kind of just engaging communities who uh, leverage expertise in interesting ways. And so my current work uh, is as the founder of Intersections, which is a learning and human formation company. I'm really interested in the ways in which uh, ideas that matter uh, get what they need in order to have the impact that they they hold. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that the the world we want and the world we need to build, the ideas and the wisdom and the expertise for those things are already here. Uh, But the the challenge is that we either don't know about these ideas or we haven't amplified them to the place where they kind of reach critical mass and begin to really shape our life together. Or perhaps we just haven't quite yet found the courage uh, to do what we already know we ought to do. And so my work is really to work with ideas. Uh, My expertise, as I describe it, uh, is expertise. That gap between uh, what you know and how you leverage uh, what you know. And so it is uh, always an interesting adventure to think about the way in which this intersects with public speaking, um, which I think is one place where kind of no matter your expertise, uh, most of us get a pit uh, in our stomach and our hands are cold, uh, but it's something that's, that's essential to the work that we try to do in the world. How long have you been in public speaking and do you still get that pit in your stomach or the clammy hands, the cold hands. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for, for almost 20 years now. Uh, my hands are always cold. Uh, it doesn't matter how confident I am, how comfortable I am. Uh, it doesn't matter how well it went or how poorly it went. Uh, my hands are cold. That's just, uh, it's just a part of my, part of my body's process. Right. Um, I've begun to not see that as a liability, but to see it as a recognition of the value of what I'm about to do, that my body recognizes that something meaningful is about to take place and it's it's anticipating uh, what's coming. So yeah, certainly, uh, I don't think uh, those things are going to go away from me, but I have come to see them as a, a reminder of the importance of what I'm about to do. And listeners, I want you to look at it that way. If you get the whatever it is, however the nerves physically display for you, I want you to use it as a fuel to remind you of how important it is what you are about to share with your audience. 
Michael Hannigan is the founder of Intersections, a learning and human formation company, and he's the creator of Intellectual Property Architecture. As an intellectual property architect, he works with clients around the world to identify systems and practices that enable them to maximize the impact and scale of their hard-earned wisdom, experience, and expertise. Michael cannot read fewer than five books at a time. He's fascinated by the incredible learning and sophistication of ancient societies, and he's tried to solve all of the world's problems more than once around a bonfire with friends. He lives in Edmond, Oklahoma with his wife, kids, and dog. What would you say is the biggest problem you solve or one of the biggest problems you solve in your presentations? Uh, I think one of the things that I do in my presentations that are maybe different than others is that I've thought deeply about what I call the work behind the work. So uh, this is the the practices and the the information needed to make sure that whatever I'm communicating is received effectively. Right. So there are a lot of people who really know their stuff, who who can, their content is outstanding, but their presentation is the is a disaster. And so the impact of those ideas, the impact of that expertise, all the blood, sweat and tears and the preparation, uh, it just it just falls flat on its face. And so part of where I have really learned to come to enjoy public speaking and where a lot of my work is at intersections is to help people think about uh, the work behind the work of speaking, right? How do I communicate these ideas in ways that I know are easy to retain, that are quick to understand, that are uh, not distracting from the next piece that I'm going to deal with? I'm not uh, trying to get someone to still figure out two points ago while I'm already moving on to the next thing. What are the ways that um, I introduce language or metaphor how do I go between like critical thinking and imagination? Like all of these kinds of questions about not necessarily what I'm saying, but how I'm saying, I think are uh, where most public speaking uh, either uh, shoots for the moon or, or goes to die pretty quickly. Now, I'm always for my listeners and I'm always going to give them value. I am about to squeeze a mini coaching session out of you. And I'm going to ask you for one tip or one strategy that someone can put in place right now that will make their ideas either easier to retain, that will make them quicker to understand, or that will reduce the distraction level of their ideas. What's one strategy our listeners can put in place to make any one of those happen? Yeah, here's my favorite thing when you're talking, especially to people who are experts, when you're talking to those high-performing teams, those people who are already on their game, uh, I want you to be aware of this one rule or this one principle. It's called the expertise reversal effect. So this is a psychological effect where uh, maybe this has happened to you. You're in a training where someone asks you to do something that is far below your skill level, right? My wife teaches elementary art. Uh, and too often her trainings talk to her like she is in kindergarten, not like she teaches kindergartners, right? Or we we come along and we work with people who are already doing the work and we say, let me introduce you how to do the work, right? We 
we give context and background and introduction that is just if we were honest we would just say it's insulting right it's it's kind of beneath where we live and what cognitive science teaches us about the expertise reversal effect is that the power of expertise is that over an extensive period of time you have built these kind of innovative and agile super highways in your in your brain to make connections between all the things that you've acquired in your expertise right the power of being an expert is that you connect dots that other people don't connect you connect them faster and you connect them better well what happens when someone comes in and undercuts your expertise by kind of teaching beneath you is your brain is forced to go from those super highways that you run all the time as an expert to the dirt road that you left behind a long time ago. And so it is literally two to four times the cognitive load for you to take in information that is beneath your expertise, right? So if you've ever been in that training where it feels like it's insulting your intelligence and you leave with a headache, it is literally because it has been exponentially more work for you to be there, for you to listen, to try to participate. It is, it is literally harder for you to learn in that scenario. And so what I find with the expertise reversal effect is this, this way to be aware of, am I meeting the people I'm speaking to at the level that they already are? And that if I don't, the burden that I place on them to go where I want to take them is exponentially harder than it had to be. So when I'm shocked that these experts don't take my advice, it could be not that my advice was the problem, but that the amount of labor it would require for them to get to the place where I was trying to take them was just excessive and it was unnecessary. So for me, I think this is like one of the most insightful things when you're talking to people who really know their stuff. This doesn't apply to people that you're introducing something new to, but for people that already uh, have some competency or maybe even are already at the top. This is the fastest way to absolutely blow up whatever you're doing uh, is to undercut them and then trigger this expertise reversal effect. Wow. I love how you explained that because I was sitting here looking like a bobblehead doll thinking about it wasn't a presentation that I was in where I felt that fatigue, if you will, that mental fatigue. But there's a conversation or a couple of conversations with someone in particular where this person feels the need to explain things that for me don't require any explanation. And at one point in the conversation, because I'm just, you know, one, my, my calendar is packed and I'm just trying to get this conversation done in time because I have like seven minutes of wiggle time and I needed to speak with the person. So I'm trying to move it along. But I, at one point, I even said, if I ask a closed-ended question and the answer is no, I'm cool with that. I'm a big girl. You don't have to tell me why it's a no. I'm, 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 hey, it's your protocol. It's your, I, okay. <laughs> but then I get this explanation. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. I don't care what the reason yeah. is. <laughs> Yeah. And so, so this reality, I think is, um, I think this is one of the most common ways that really good content goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And sometimes, you know, people will, well, I, you know, I don't know. I think they worry about making it too complex. Sure. So they feel like they need to scaffold or provide some foundational content when they yeah. really don't have to. So, Michael, talk to us about how do we guard against venturing into the world of expertise, reversal effect, and not worrying about do the audience members have the prior knowledge, the basic knowledge. How, how do we guard against that? Yeah. So there's two scenarios where you have to navigate this. One is when everybody's of the same expertise level, right? And the answer is just don't undercut them, right? So this is where just getting clear about who you're talking to, where they're at, what they know is really important. But when you have these differentiated audiences where you have uh, a novice and an expert in the same room, or you have a, a beginner, uh, an amateur and a professional in the same space, uh, the easiest way to avoid this is to differentiate what you're going to say by first appealing to the expert. So one of the ways that I do this concretely when I speak in spaces that are uh, of mixed kind of capacity is to say, you know, I'm really glad to be here today. We're going to explore X, Y, and Z. For those of you who've been in this game for a long time, here's what I need you to be thinking about. One, two, three, and then, all right, while you're thinking about that, let me get everybody else up to speed. And then off we go, right? So instead of uh, neglecting my experts, I've given them something that they can do in full autonomy because they're experts, right? I can set them loose on a trajectory where they don't have to have any kind of support or scaffolding, but will have something meaningful to add to the conversation while I provide that additional background, context, information, language, whatever that might be for the people who are at that that second level. So um by differentiating up front, by making sure that you don't undercut, but that you uh, kind of employ your experts right up front, uh, then you can turn your attention to the people who need a little more support. And then what you find, I think, is that it's easier. It's easier than to bring everybody back together around a shared piece and that you're actually able in some ways to diminish the gap between your your most novice and your most expert. Uh, because they're not trying to bring the same contribution, right? So, you know, once we once we start coming back together again, it might be to say, for those of you who are new, what questions do you have? And hopefully I've given my experts enough of a lead that they're kind of already thinking about the answers before those questions even emerge. And so now what I've done as the speaker uh, is I've added value in that I've made this gathering possible. I've probably offered some additional expertise that is uh, added to the conversation, but I've also taught them, hey, guess what? There's a learning community in the community that you already have right here in front of you long after I'm gone, you know, for the next question that emerges. Like you've also made a contribution to culture um, by showing that differentiation is not a deficit, uh, it's an asset. That is a fantastic approach. Starting that way lets the experts know at what level they need to listen. Because if I am one of those really good audience members, I'm leaning in for every single word. But when you tell me, if you are already you know, in the field, you have X number of years of experience or however you want to set it up. Yeah. But if you let me know, depending on my knowledge level of the content, 
that, you know what, you can kind of sit back for a second. Then I'm, I'm, I'm thinking differently. Yeah. I, I have a totally different uh, approach to the presentation. Michael, you said earlier, I'm kind of shifting gears a little bit. You said earlier that you were a higher ed administrator for a little while. I'm just yeah. being nosy right now. What did you do as a higher ed admin? Yeah, I was an administrator for uh, two master's programs in technology management at Columbia University. So yeah. uh, one master's program was for students kind of fresh out of school, getting started in their careers. Uh, and then the second was an executive master's program where we were bringing in uh, tech executives from all over the world. Uh, and we we ran that master's program uh, in New York, San Francisco and Paris. And so uh, that that program was primarily not about the technology itself, but about how you conceptualize, theorize and enact like the leveraging of whatever technology is industry relevant in the work that you do. And so I dealt with all the faculty onboarding, but then I also did a lot of uh, course design, uh, you know, a lot of consultation about the way that we designed uh, projects and outcomes. Uh, and then I was also a guest lecturer in ethics of innovation. What's been the best part about being a professional speaker? Uh, I think the best part has been the space it has given me to stop and think meaningfully about ideas that take time before they're ready. Like not all, not all meaningful conversations can happen on the fly, right? That public speaking creates a space where someone can bring something that is curated and thoughtful and intentional and strategic. And from that, something can happen on the fly, right? But that it wouldn't have just kind of naturally popped up in the course of conversation had we all just shown up cold. I find that public speaking is a great space uh, to really accelerate like learning and change and community and to build culture. Um, and then the other piece too, is that it does broaden, I think, uh, the the community that you get to draw on. I'm always interested when I'm speaking uh, about how to maintain connections to the places I go, and then to begin to leverage network upon network upon network as, uh, as someone who kind of gets around uh, to a bunch of different organizations across industries. Uh, to think about how how we all make each other better uh, in pursuit of something that's good for the for the whole human family, not just for the the people who are in the room. In a little bit, you will turn the microphone around on me and ask me a question. I'm wondering for now, what was one of the biggest challenges you had as a speaker, or one of the I don't know one of the biggest ways that you evolved maybe that's a more positive spin on it <laughs> or one of the greatest ways you've evolved as opposed to biggest greatest ways you've evolved from day one to now as a speaker sure i think uh day one i was always focused on uh what i was going to say and i think now in my career i'm much more interested in how i'm going to say uh that um Ideas in and of themselves don't have value if they're not communicated clearly and in ways that connect with people's experience. So, uh, yes, I'm interested. It still matters to me what I say, uh, but only through the lens of how I'm going to communicate uh, the thing that I'm going to say. As someone who uh, 
it can be frustrating. I, I'm not easy to pin down. I'm a little bit all over the place, which is, you know, one of my favorite things as a generalist to just kind of be able to speak into a whole bunch of areas at the same time. Uh, I think it's even more important for me to be really mindful about how, uh, because the what is so agile and so flexible. Uh, you know, I, I can probably talk about just about anything at some point. Um, but the question is like, how will I know that what I'm bringing uh, is going to connect with the people that I'm speaking to. And then is there some way that I can make it most likely uh, that the outcome that we're all hoping for, uh, I can't guarantee that I can't force it to happen, but can I make, can I make the most ideal conditions uh, for that outcome to emerge? Um, you know, there are things that are unavoidable, but my goal is to remove the unnecessary uh, hurdles. What would you say are some ideal conditions or factors in an ideal condition. I know for me, it's making sure that I'm not talking at my audience, but I'm making it a conversation and that I'm thinking through every single idea and how it transitions from one to the next to make sure my audience is picking up what I'm putting down. I I don't want to just be this fire hose where I turn it on and for 60 minutes, I'm giving you a blast of information, but I really think about how am I moving from one thought to the next? So for me, it's making it that conversation and choreographing my message. So what would you say are some factors in creating that environment? Yeah, I think two things that I'm just really obsessive about when I'm preparing to speak in these ways uh, is I'm obsessive about paying attention to how many things my hearer has to hold at the same time. So like, how many ideas do you have to say okay, I got to juggle this while you're giving me another. Um, And I try to never, ever, ever make that more than three. So if I've got four things I've got to tell you, I need to be able to put the first one, maybe the second one to bed before we can talk about number three. Yes. Um, (laughs) That's really important. And then along with that kind of question about load, I'm always asking what is the best way to move from uh, one to the next? So sometimes you know, when we're, when we're doing this, um, the load is just that there's lots to think about or it stimulates lots of questions or, or, you know, my, my mind is racing because, wow, you know, this is a great thing. Uh, so sometimes the load is energizing. Sometimes the load is stressful. Um, a lot of my work uh, before the pandemic was in public speaking about child welfare. And that's, that's not a happy conversation. It's a very difficult conversation to take place. And so there's a lot of stress that builds in those conversations. Um, so I was all, I, I become obsessive about the way in which I think about transitions between really important things. Um, is this a space where I need to build uh, a rest? Is this a space where I need to build uh, a release? Is this a space where I need to bring some levity or some, you know, uh, some sarcasm even like, Something you know, some something to kind of take the pressure off so that we can push in a little further. You know, my favorite example of this uh, is John Oliver, uh, the the comedian. You know, when when he talks about something really really difficult in his show, uh, just when you get, I can't handle this anymore. It's too. I'm too mad. I'm too. There's too much anxiety about it. Uh, he'll drop a joke, and then it feels like he's about to just let you off the hook. But what he's done is he's leveraged that joke in order to take you even deeper than what you would have done otherwise. And so 
uh, that kind of awareness about uh, what that pivot is doing, uh, I think is just something that's become really, really important for me. Yeah, you know, I I think that takes a lot of the pressure off of a speaker when you think about how you're moving from one idea to the next and how it makes the audience feel. Is it moving the audience affectively, behaviorally, or cognitively? Are you wanting to change the way they feel? And how are you moving through your words that way? Do you want to change their actions? Are you changing how they think about something? And so using, whether it's questions, whether it's activities, whether it's think, pair, share, to transition from, I gave you this one idea and I I wanted to move you a certain way. And let me build in that transition of some great questions, some great conversation piece for you to have with your neighbor. And then move into the next thought. It, it, you're... I mean, I don't want to put more pressure on on speakers, but you are creating an event. It it is a production. It is. You are you are talking to human beings, right? You're not. Uh, it, it public speaking is a different modality than writing. It is a different modality than being a talking head on social media. It is a different. It it is uh, inherently dependent upon the person who is listening in a way that no other medium is. And so if you're not conscious of that person, if you're not thinking about how you're taking care of or pushing or stressing out uh, or, or exciting the person that you're speaking to, uh, you know, the, the result of your work is, is going to be impacted by that. And maybe in ways that, uh, that you don't know, or certainly that you don't want. Absolutely. Michael, what is your question for me? Uh, my question for you is when you think about public speaking, what is the topic that uh, you wouldn't want to talk about, but that needs to be talked about? Ooh, a topic that I would not want to talk about, but that needs to be talked about. I think is, and I don't think this is the right word, but I'm going to use it, acceptance. Being willing to accept people as they are without a lot of explanation. This is who this person is. Let's just accept them, right? Now, you know, we don't want to be too accepting of someone who's not contributing to society or who's a menace or so on and so forth, but just being more inclusive maybe is the word. And we do a pretty good job, but there's still work to do, but maybe that's it. That's a really good question. Maybe that would be it. Check back with me next week and I might have a different answer, but for now I'm sticking with acceptance and, and inclusion. <laughs> what about you? What's a topic you wouldn't want to speak on, but that needs to be discussed? Uh, I, I wouldn't want to have a conversation right now uh, about, about the expectation that we have uh, that everybody is able to be a professional speaker. Mm. Like, like you and I live in a world where, uh, 
everybody can become a coach, consultant, professional speaker, whatever that, whatever that means in the moment. Um, and it's not to say that we should like have some kind of gatekeeping, right? But I think what it what would be a, a healthier alternative, a different reframe, would be to say um, the impact of your presentation should not rely entirely on your charisma, on your stage presence, on your presentation skills. Uh, the conversations and the learning in my life that has been most impactful for me uh, would have never made those big stages. It, it never came to me in the stages that I, that I speak on. It was always in kind of the mundane and the unassuming spaces. And so part of what I wish we could get past is this idea that to be successful, it's got to be these uh, incredible, impressive, you know, really sexy opportunities uh, for this to be for this to be something that you should pay attention to. Um, and so I, I think I would love to have a conversation just to say, like, uh, it's it's OK if if uh, this keynote sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a pretty good answer. Michael, what else do our listeners need to know from you in order to make sure they are owning the microphone? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the greatest thing that a speaker or an aspiring speaker can do to become kind of next level among their peers is to pay attention to that work behind the work, right? So it's not necessarily about the things that you will actually say, but about understanding uh, how humans learn, about understanding how ideas are put together, about understanding how um, the presentation choices that we make make a huge difference. Um, and that when we, when you understand those, you're able then to produce content that is free of unnecessary friction, right? Public speaking is difficult. Uh, especially the larger your audiences get, it's just harder to connect, right? Sometimes you can't even see them, right? The spotlights are too bright. There's no, there are people there that you know, but you cannot see. Like it is, it is hard to connect. Um, and some of that friction is unavoidable. Uh, but I think doing that work behind the work is the best way uh, to free your work of all its unnecessary friction. Uh, and then I think that makes you amongst Amongst peers with the same skill level, I think that's what makes you elite amongst your peers at whatever level you find yourself. Um, it's the fastest way to differentiate yourself. And I think it's also uh, a really interesting way to change the way that you communicate. I like it. I like it a lot. Michael Hannigan, thank you for being on the show. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks. It's been great to be here. Cool beans. And thank you to the listeners. My name is Bridget McGowan. Until next time, make sure you always own the microphone.